0: I actually came across a tweet this morning um, and maybe we can retweet it to our coffee and steam page as well so everyone can see but it's someone who went into a science classroom and saw a sign that says in this lab mistakes are expected respected inspected and corrected and you know that's such a great mindset to start instilling in young minds (laughs) because it really helps them kind of like feel comfortable in the work that they're doing and feel comfortable making mistakes and asking questions you know Mm -hmm.
1: i you know in addition to classrooms i think that poster needs to be in every research (laughs) lab because normalizing failures in research and making mistakes is very very crucial Mm -hmm. um so that's a great tweet
0: Welcome, everyone, to Coffee and Steam podcast, where we choose scientific accessibility over jargon and coffee over all other beverages. So grab your cup of coffee or a beverage of your preference. We won't be offended if it's not coffee and get ready for some steam. We're so excited to welcome our guest for today. Welcome, Denny, to Coffee and Steam.
2: Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. So thank you for inviting me. And I'm excited to talk more about science. <laughs>
0: So Denny is a fourth year PhD candidate at Western University in Ontario, uh, studying bacterial pathogenesis and disease. Denny is also graduating with his PhD in two months, so congrats. (laughs) He's been working on some interesting research projects and has also been heavily involved in science communication. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Denny?
2: Yeah, so I think Gaia did a very good job of introducing me. So I'm a fourth year PhD candidate at Western University studying bacterial pathogenesis. Uh, so what I'm hoping to do uh, after my research is obviously graduate in the next couple months and then hopefully get a job uh, where I can continue to do this kind of research that I really like doing in the lab. Uh, so fun fact about myself, uh, like they said, I have a science Instagram where I talk about all things science. So. I mainly talk about um, you know, research tips and advice for undergrads or young graduate students who are just navigating their way through science and research. Uh, so I don't want to spoil too much about myself because there will be obviously a lot of questions later. So yeah, I'm very happy to be here.
1: That's so exciting. You're gonna begin a new chapter in your life. And uh, we love your science Instagram. We are your some of your top followers. <laughs> So, as we do with all our guests, we do have a burning question um, before getting and diving into all the good stuff. And as everybody knows, Guy 3 and I are both obsessed with coffee. And, you know, since you are a graduate student, what kind of drink, it doesn't have to be coffee, would you describe your grad student personality as?
2: <laughs> no, it's pretty difficult because, you know, I don't want to feel uh, like a weirdo because i don't really <laughs> i don't really drink that much coffee and when i do it's like just like the instant coffee that i have at home
0: mm-hmm. so
2: maybe still I would good, just, still maybe good. i would describe myself as instant coffee you know like just ready to to be just ready at any time you know
1: <laughs> that's actually I really that. that's actually a really good like analogy instant you're ready you're ready to do anything <laughs> and try anything new Um, So to begin, Denny, why don't you start by telling us about what inspired your research and your educational journey?
2: Uh, Yeah, so I don't actually have, you know, like a grand story. You know, I think a lot of Mm -hmm. people that I've talked to, they're usually like, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist since I was six years old because (laughs) I was so curious about nature. You know, I don't have that kind of story. So I actually started off uh, in school where I actually disliked science. Um, I just wasn't interested in it, and I wasn't very good at it. Um, but it wasn't until like around grade 10, uh, that's when I really started to uh, give my all for school in general. And science is actually one of, ended up being one of my highest marks. And at the time, it was just something I wanted to kind of continue doing because I was good at it. So it wasn't really a good reason at the time. Um, but near the end of high school, I actually came across Uh, a random documentary on YouTube. It's called Monsters Inside Me. Uh, Mm. So, sorry, it's not a documentary on YouTube, but it was a documentary that I happened to see on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And it's basically all about um, people who are just living normal lives and then suddenly they get some sort of infection and it's like really scary. And they're trying to find out what is the cause of the infection, um, what the symptoms were, and how they were going to treat it. So it was actually really scary watching that because, you know, watching these things made me, you know, really paranoid. Like, oh my God, what if I get these infections or someone I know gets some sort of random infection? But then it also made me really, uh, I was also really fascinated by how such small things like microbes, things you can't even see with your eyes can actually have such a devastating impact on human health. So that's what got me interested in pursuing microbiology as a major in undergrad. and. I didn't even know anything about research so you know I wanted to do microbiology but I didn't know what I could do with microbiology Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until second year of university in undergrad where a lot of my peers and friends started getting research positions and I knew I wasn't going to enjoy being in like med school which is obviously a very popular uh, career choice for Mm -hmm. life science Mm -hmm. undergrads Mm -hmm. and a lot of my friends started getting research positions so you know I was like you know, that sounds like something that would be good on my resume, even if it's not something I do as a career. And I was lucky enough to get a research position at the end of my second year, so during the summer. And I think that's when I started to really enjoy science. You know, not everything went well in my undergrad research, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it did give me good exposure uh, to understand how research and science actually works. And it made me realize that, you know, research is something that I can see myself doing and enjoying.
1: Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. honestly so great to hear because I think a lot of people growing up think you have to be really good at a subject to, you know, make it your career. Mm -hmm. And I think it's awesome that, you know, you figured out, you know, gained your footing later, um, you know, when you're a little older. And I think, you know, your story really shows us that you're allowed to explore your careers in undergrad and you don't have to have things set in stone. Because I think when I went from (laughs) high school to university, I wanted to plan out like the next 10 years of my life Um, and I soon realized that is not going to be the case (laughs) okay so I guess this um, is kind of a good spot to you know talk about your PhD pathway and how did you get to Western and um, you know uh, how did you decide you know you wanted to pursue a PhD and maybe not just drop out a master's
2: Yes, so When I started doing research in undergrad, that's when I realized, you know, Mm -hmm. I think I want to do graduate school, Mm -hmm. uh, do research. So like I mentioned, you know, obviously my undergrad research, it wasn't like, you know, like the time of my life or anything. Mm -hmm. I did have my struggles and I actually almost thought about not doing research anymore because it was so tough. Um, But I think a big part of why it was so tough was because I was trying to uh, do research and balance it with all my courses that I was taking in Mm -hmm. undergrad. And... I think my interest in my undergraduate research project eventually started to wane a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I was becoming a little less interested in it. And it was, again, probably due to all the stress of trying to prioritize um, getting good grades in my courses mm-hmm. as well. Um, but, you know, I keep thinking back about, um, you know, how I was interested in studying uh, bacterial diseases. You know, that kind of kept me going a little bit. So I decided, you know, I could always study something a little bit different from what I was doing in undergrad. So in undergrad, yes, I was doing microbiology research, but it wasn't really in the context of um, disease. Mm-hmm. So it was like my one chance to um, really get into a lab I wanted to uh, do this type of research in. And especially now, I have, the necess- I have the required research experience. So then I could probably be a more attractive candidate to some of the professors that are yeah. looking for new grad students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I wanted to stay in Ontario because uh, my family is from Toronto. Yeah, so I started looking at a bunch of different schools in Ontario. Um, I wasn't limiting myself to just Toronto. I know Toronto is a really big school for research, but uh, I think it's important to also find a lab you enjoy, not just go into a program for its overall prestige. So that's when I found a couple labs at Western University that I was interested in. I interviewed with them and they liked me. So. I eventually narrowed it down to just that one lab and so I joined that lab and that's where I began my studies in bacterial pathogenesis.
1: That's
2: awesome. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I think there's a question asking, you know, how did I go from master's to PhD? Mm-hmm. Why didn't I just stop at doing a mm-hmm. master's? Um, so I think it, for, the, for the audience who may not know, I think Canada is really good in this aspect because we can actually start off as a master's student. And then later on in the middle of our second year, we can decide to transition into a Ph.D. program or just stop and continue and eventually graduate with our master's. And I think uh, it's really good to do that because, um, you know, graduate school can be a really big commitment. And you're not always sure whether you want to go down the route of getting a Ph.D. because that's at least four years. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas other countries like in the States, they don't really have that option. They have to go into the Ph.D. program right away, which can be very daunting. So it was very beneficial for me to start off as a master student because, you know, there's always that chance, you know, I may not like that project even though I think I would. Um, so it really, it really gives me a chance to test the waters. So after about a year and a half and I had to make that decision, uh, I realized, you know, I really did like working on this project and going through a bunch of different jobs and like LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to kind of find jobs I want, I want to uh, do in the future. I noticed a lot of them did require a PhD. So that was one of the major factors uh, that pushed me to do a PhD. So it was my interest in my project. It was going well. I liked it, as well as potential job prospects. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so
0: great. So we did talk about how LinkedIn is such a great resource in our previous episode for kind of getting a feel for what's in your field and the industry. So it's great that, you know, like, You took your time to kind of look into all of your options and make your choice. Um, So, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your PhD research if you can?
2: Yeah, so the lab that I'm in focuses on this human bacterial pathogen called Staphylococcus aureus. I'm just going to call it Staph for short because that is a very long name to say and quite a mouthful. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah so staph aureus is actually yeah as i mentioned it's a human uh, pathogen that can cause a number of diseases so uh, for example mild diseases such as skin and soft tissue infections yeah so staph aureus can also cause uh, very severe disease such as sepsis and pneumonia just to name a couple and one of the major reasons why staph aureus is such a threat to people is because there are many multi-drug resistant strains of Staph aureus now. So that basically means that um, these antibiotics, uh, which are drugs that kill bacteria, uh, are now no longer very useful. They can no longer kill Staph aureus and therefore it's really hard to treat these infections. So it's become extremely important to find or discover new antimicrobials that can be used to treat these Staph aureus um, infections are now resistant to so many of our drugs
1: so are you testing a particular drug or maybe kind of understanding how the you know mechanisms in the bacteria works um, in response to you know to build that resistance essentially
2: yeah so one of the uh, really cool things about bacteria is that Mm. they are often found in communities so it's very it's very rare to actually find you know like staph aureus or any other bacteria like on its own. Mm -hmm. And Staph aureus is actually found to colonize human skin in about 30% of the population. So that's pretty big. And your skin is always exposed to the environment. Mm -hmm. So there's always a ton of other bacteria that are living together with Staph aureus. And a lot of these bacteria are actually other species of Staphylococcus. And because they're constantly living together, they're likely competing for limited nutrients in space because the skin is actually is obviously not a very nutritious environment. It's very dry. So mm-hmm. a lot of these bacteria are fighting one another to kind of compete for these limited nutrients. And some of these bacteria, to basically gain a competitive edge over Staph aureus, they actually secrete antimicrobials to kill Staph aureus. So oh, wow. we're kind of taking advantage of that by finding some of these bacteria that normally live with Staph aureus and testing to see whether they make these antimicrobials. Mm-hmm. And I was actually able to find one particular bacterial strain that does make this antimicrobial. So a lot of my research was basically trying to find out what this antimicrobial is, mm-hmm. uh, isolating it, and then testing it to see if we can just use that pure compound to really treat Staph aureus infections using preclinical models and finding out you know exactly how it works.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that sounds so interesting and amazing and very novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you think maybe um, in the future it could potentially lead to like a therapeutic option or intervention, like potentially?
2: Yeah, so one of the problems yeah. with uh, drug discovery is that uh, a lot of drugs that you find at in the lab, so in the preclinical setting. Mm-hmm. They actually fail when you try to use them in humans for many mm-hmm. different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I can't say for sure whether it can or mm-hmm. it, or it won't be used in humans, but there's always that chance that it could be.
1: Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that definitely makes sense. There's just so much involved moving from like, you know, cell culture to an in vivo model to humans. So that's mm-hmm. very understandable. <laughs> Um, So when the public, you know, thinks of research, they think of animal or human models first. Can you maybe explain what cell culture is and, you know, what's its significance and importance?
2: Yep. So cell culture, as the name implies, is basically getting cells, you know, these can be from animals or humans, and basically growing them in isolation. So you just have one type of cell that's grown in a dish. But, like I said, these are cells derived from animals or humans. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're trying to look for drugs that could potentially treat lung infections, um, then you could just use lung cells on their own and then infect them with bacteria and then try to add your drug of interest to see whether you're basically able to kill off the bacteria and keep the lung cells healthy. So the reason why using cell culture is so important and useful is because, like I said, you can study them in isolation. And these cells, they typically grow extremely fast. So you're able to just keep getting more and more cells uh, without very much work. Uh, Whereas using animals, uh, you know, it's very expensive. There's a lot of things going on in the animal. You're not just studying that one organ that you're interested in. And you don't want to go through that obstacle without first ensuring that your drug actually works um, in a in a simpler environment such as in a petri dish with cells
0: Mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah I know you touched a bit about antibiotic resistance. Uh, There's a lot of conversation about taking antibiotics and how people often stop taking them early because they don't see any more of their symptoms. Um, Do you know how they've been overused in healthcare, if they have, and how should people be taking them more appropriately?
2: Yeah, so antibiotics, uh, they have definitely been overused in healthcare, but also in agriculture. Mm -hmm. So for some unknown reason, by administering uh, antibiotics in the food for uh, animals they actually gets the animals to grow a lot quicker and the reason for that is currently unknown so for like farmers it's very mm-hmm. beneficial for them to use antibiotics because you know they get a bigger animal more quickly so that means more profit for them but of course you know when an, an- animal intakes antibiotics some of it will be excreted so there's a lot of uh, exposure of these antibiotics to the environment and of course that can connect to people later So that's the reason why there's a lot of antibiotic resistant bacteria out there is because they're constantly Mm -hmm. being exposed to low amounts of it in the environment. And that selects for resistance. Uh, And in the hospital setting, um, it's not, it's not as much antibiotics being used compared to what's being used in animals, but it also contributes to antibiotic resistance. For example, um, antibiotics, they only work against bacteria. But a lot of people don't know that and they take it for infections caused by viruses. Mm -hmm. So the antibiotics Mm -hmm. are not doing anything to the viruses. But because you're taking them anyway, that exposes your gut microbiome, which has a ton of bacteria, Mm -hmm. to these antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And once again, you're selecting for these uh, resistance phenotypes. Mm
0: -hmm. So
2: you really have to be careful with using antibiotics when appropriate. And another thing that people often do that they shouldn't do is they stop taking antibiotics um, before they're told to do so, because mm-hmm. you know when, you're, when you have an infection and let's say a doctor tells you to take antibiotics for 14 days, but you feel better after 10 days, so you decide to stop taking it for the remaining four, well, what the antibiotics are doing is they're trying to eliminate the bacteria. And sure, you feel a lot better because by day 10, the antibiotics have killed off most of the bacteria. But there's still a little bit left. It's just not enough for you to really experience any of the symptoms. But now that you've stopped taking it and there are still some bacteria left, they're going to start growing again out of control. And because you've already used some antibiotics, you've already selected for a resistance to appear. So you really want to go through the entire course of antibiotics and not just stop just because you feel better to really minimize the risk of uh, emerging resistance. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, it seems like there's kind of different... Contri- like different factors contributing to antibiotic resistance. And I was actually very shocked about the animals. Like, I yeah. was not aware of that and I did not know that. And that's great. Thanks for sharing that.
0: <laughs> You're also very active on social media. You're always sharing your research tips and STEM content online. So, what made you want to start sharing your experience online?
2: Yeah. So, a few months before I started my own Instagram account, I was actually uh, starting to follow a lot of these other people on instagram doing the same types of things you know they post advice um, and they document their own experiences in research and i think that was really eye-opening for me because uh, seeing all of these different posts made me realize that a lot of the uh, struggles that i go through in the lab is actually not unique to me and for the longest time i thought you know i was the only one uh, experiencing these problems in the lab um, whether it be experiments or just you um, you know, feelings of guilt or failure in the lab when things don't work. I thought that was all unique to me, but seeing a lot of other people post about these experiences and being really open about their feelings made me realize that like we're kind of in grad school together and there's no need to kind of suffer on your own. So that really inspired me to make my own Instagram account, where I also document my own experiences, but also make posts for research tips and advice um, to kind of generate a sense of community and belonging for other grad students who think that they're kind of alone in this. And another reason I actually started this is because I'm also a first-generation student, and I had no idea how grad school really worked. Like, sure, I could see it from um, my lab mates when I was in undergrad. You know, there were under, there were other grad students in the lab and. I could kind of uh, understand how they felt, but it's, it's really not the same as experiencing, your, experiencing it yourself. So as a first-generation grad student, I also wanted to help other first-generation grad students who were just starting to navigate their way through re- research because a lot of things aren't really told to them upfront about what to expect from research. So I thought showing the realities of research through my own experiences or just informational posts would be really helpful to other first-generation students going into research.
1: Yeah, that's awesome i think i really resonate with that where the science community online has grown significantly and yeah. it's just really awesome to see people you know kind of openly sharing their failures and normalizing it because few fa- failures are common and they're normal and they lead to successful moments and um that it's just really nice and um the whole aspect of being a first generation in grad school was kind of what inspired Guy through and I mm-hmm. to start this podcast and kind of really share people's uh, research journeys and give them the opportunity to share some advice and tips and all of that. Mm-hmm. So speaking of <laughs> advice and tips, um, what are... Um, some you know tips and tricks you would provide to fresh graduate students on track to start their PhD or maybe even undergraduates who want to start their PhD and what are some things you've experienced firsthand that maybe you wish someone had told you you know before you started your PhD
2: yeah so I wouldn't really call it advice but Mm -hmm. more so just things to um, Mm -hmm. get them to better mentally prepare themselves so whether Mm -hmm. you're an undergrad or a graduate student who's doing research, I think it's always important to keep in mind that, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, that failure happens a lot. And it's very easy to be discouraged when things don't work out in your favor, especially because many undergrads uh, and grad students who are doing research, you know, they were were basically the top students in their uh, classes when Mm -hmm. they studied for exams and, and did assignments. So to go from being, you know, like one of the top students of your cohort to suddenly constantly failing experiments that could be a really big blow to your self-esteem but i think it's really important again to emphasize that this is normal and it happens to even the best researchers um, because if you didn't fail and you just got things to work right away then that kind of defeats the whole purpose of research because the whole point of research is trying to find and discover something new and if you already knew how to get the right answer right away then it must not have been that novel or someone else may have already done it uh so yeah one of my biggest advice is to try to not let failure get to you um i'm still trying to internalize that advice myself uh it's easier said than done for sure but when things don't work out just tell yourself you know this is normal it happens to everyone and just kind of get back on your feet and keep trying um to do the work that you're trying to do Um, yeah The other piece of advice um, is that you should try to do all the experiments and test all the ideas that you're interested in as well. So I think uh, as young undergrad and grad students, you know, we're kind of just listening to what the senior people are telling us to do and trying to follow their ideas, because obviously they know a lot more than us. It makes a lot of sense to just go with their ideas. Mm -hmm. So while that's important, it's also important to test your own hypotheses and your own ideas too. Uh, because you never know, one of the ideas that you think of may be a game changer for your project, and you wouldn't know that until you test it. And also, it's, it's just an overall great way to continue to learn about your project, you know, constantly trying different things that other people suggest, but also things that you think of yourself. So don't be afraid to kind of put your ideas out there and test it, even if you think that they may not be good ideas because you're a less experienced researcher.
1: For sure. That's, yeah, that's great to hear. I think that's one of the things, um, you know, the grad students told me in my lab when I started was that, you know, if you don't fail, you don't learn anything in Mm -hmm. research. And that's also something I'm still continuously trying to process and accept that failure is very normal.
0: Yeah. I actually came across a tweet this morning um, and maybe we can retweet it to our coffee and steam page as well so everyone can see but it's someone who went into a science classroom and saw a sign that says in this lab mistakes are expected respected inspected and corrected and you know that's such a great mindset to start instilling in young minds (laughs) because it really helps them kind of like comfortable in the work that they're doing and feel comfortable making mistakes and asking questions you know mm-hmm I you know in addition to classrooms I think that poster
1: needs to be in every research <laughs> lab because yeah. normalizing failures in research and making mistakes is very very
0: crucial mm-hmm. um, so that's a great tweet <laughs> So, as you mentioned, you're preparing to graduate with your PhD and you're soon to be doctor in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, how has your experience been researching in a pandemic? Um, and how have you been able to navigate these like setbacks and obstacles?
2: So I think the biggest setback was like when the very first lockdown happened in Canada. So, of mm-hmm. course, all the labs shut down and... Uh, our lab is very wet lab based, so that means pretty much all of our work is done at the bench in the lab. And if lab shut down, we really couldn't do anything because, you know, we didn't have big um, components of our work be involved with like coding or a lot of things you can do on your computer. You know, everything is done at the bench. So I definitely lost a couple months, and it was really hard to kind of cope with that because I felt like I wasn't doing anything productive, and I was trying to come up with things to do on my computer, but. It wasn't enough to, like, make up for all that time that was lost. And even when labs started opening back up again, um, we had to minimize the capacity significantly. So, you know, instead of having all, like, 10 to 12 of us in the lab at once, only, like, two or three people were allowed uh, at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that really pushed me to uh, better organize uh, my experiments and really enhance my time management skills because... Now I have to take into account that uh, I only have limited hours in the day to do my work before the next shift of people come in to do their work. So it was pretty tough trying to get as much done as possible, but also within such a tight time frame and considering uh, everyone else had to do their work too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if I really overcame that problem. It was just when the lockdown uh, restrictions started to get lifted little by little and people were able to spend more hours in the lab. So I think I was quite lucky that the first lockdown didn't uh, stop me for too long and things eventually became as normal as they could have been to get my research back on track.
1: Hmm. Well, despite all of those lockdowns, you still managed to finish your PhD in four (laughs) years. So that's awesome. And congratulations on your accomplishments so far. So um, what are essentially your plans um, after your PhD and are you continuing to explore kind of what opportunities there are?
2: Yeah, so that's a very good question. And uh, I think I was actually really lucky to be working on the project that I am working on now, uh, which is like discovering new antibiotics because it really made me realize that this is actually something I'm really passionate about and I really want to do even after I graduate from my PhD. Uh, so I think a lot of research done in academic labs is very discovery based. Mm-hmm. So trying to find out, you know, how the mechanism of certain disease works, or just trying to discover some natural phenomenon and really dissect it. But what I really liked about my project was I could see that, uh, my discoveries could potentially be translated to use in the clinic to really treat patients. So I think that was one of the major factors, um, that continued to motivate me in my research knowing that my research could actually have a direct impact on patients in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as I, and as I mentioned, antibiotic resistance is such a big problem, and I have been fascinated by microbes for quite a few years now. So after my PhD, I really want to enter um, the research and development sector in industry, mm-hmm. where I can continue to do this type of work, doing more research and development, On new antimicrobials to treat drug resistant bacterial infections.
0: Mm, That's amazing. Best of luck to you with that. Now, we'd like to end off our show with our final brew, which is a few of our last burning questions. We'd like you to answer the first thing that pops in your mind here. It can be short, it can be long, but you know, something brief, okay? We recently posted a reel on Instagram about Netflix being a distraction. I know myself and Shawnee can agree with that because we love watching our shows. On that note, what's your favorite Netflix show at the moment?
2: At the moment, I actually just finished the show I was watching, but uh, in general, I actually watch a lot of Korean dramas on Netflix. (laughs) They're good. Yeah, like especially with like like Squid Game and Mm -hmm. and the new one. I think it's called All of Us Are Dead. It's like a zombie show that came out. Yeah, I think. Yeah, Korean shows are now gaining like more and more popularity. But I was actually like really interested in Korean dramas even even before Squid Game. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was the OG like Korean <laughs> show <laughs> watcher. <laughs> yeah, there's so, so many
0: on there, and I get yeah. so I many know. recommendations. Do you have any? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. If you haven't watched All of Us Are Dead, I don't know if you have. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, a really good one. It's about zombies, and I think they do it very well. It's it's very emotional as well. So
0: really,
2: okay. yeah. But I'm at the most, yeah. At the moment, I'm actually watching Master Chef Canada. Oh, nice! <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a classic. <laughs> yeah. There's so many seasons. Like, yeah. there's so many good chefs on there. Yeah. So, yeah. next question: uh, When making your posts, is there anything that has ever gone wrong? And do you have a running blooper reel? <laughs>
2: Um, so my reels haven't gone like horribly wrong. I, I, don't ha- I don't have a funny story of like me recording something and, so- and like my supervisor coming in. Me, <laughs> that would be a nice story, but no, nothing has really gone seriously wrong. Like the only things that go wrong is like, obviously I do the take and then, you know, maybe my mouth isn't sinking to the audio as, <laughs> as much as I'd like to. So I just have to like retake it a couple times before I get it right. So, other than that, you know, I think my reels are relatively simple. I don't really do a lot of editing. Um, Mm -hmm. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: yeah, it's just sometimes I have to do multiple takes to get it right.
1: Oh... So the last and final question of our brew is so although, you know, PhD students seem like the most put together of the bunch, I think we all have some embarrassing uh, moments in the lab. What would you say is your most embarrassing lab story? Uh,
2: so this story, it didn't actually happen in my PhD, it happened to me in undergrad, but mm-hmm. this story could have happened to, to anyone because I don't think... It was a lack of expertise. It was just a really, really silly mistake. So I was working really hard in undergrad in my lab. I was there during winter break, actually, trying to do a few things. And basically I had left the freezer door open.
0: <gasps> oh no! Minus 80?
2: No, not, not the minus 80. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, the minus. <laughs> oh, my
0: yeah, my goodness. Yeah,
2: the minus 20. So oh, okay. oh. it's not that I left it open like, I closed it, but I think it wasn't closed properly and it was just cracked just a little bit. Oh, it was it wasn't oh. like it was wide open. You <laughs> okay, know? Okay. Uh it was just like cracked just a little bit open. But because it was winter break and that was my last day, by the time like school started again and everyone was coming back from their winter vacation and my PI saw it was cracked open and like everything had thawed and
0: Oh no. Yeah, basically
2: all like the enzymes and the buffers are like no good. So I'm surprised he didn't get extremely angry with me. Like obviously, he can't just like, you know, like throw me off the building Mm -hmm. or anything. I know, I know. (laughs) But yeah, I think he took it quite well, but I felt so guilty for doing that.
1: yeah i think the (laughs) freezer and the fridge is a common mistake especially with the fridge because it doesn't sometimes fully shut it doesn't close yeah and um yeah i always like double triple check the minus 80 like i will leave the room and then i'll go back because i'm so paranoid yes i always (laughs) do that (laughs) even to this day it's
2: always like the minus 80 the minus 20 and my bunsen burner even though i know i didn't even turn it on (laughs) that day i still like you know like push it until it's like super shut
1: yeah yeah anything heat related like hot play or anything like sometimes i'll lock my lab leave on my way to the parking lot and i'm like oh wait did i turn it off and i'll walk all the way back (laughs) yeah
0: well there you have it everyone today we learned about antimicrobial resistance normalizing failures and utilizing platforms like linkedin to work through options post-grad uh, thank you, Denny, for speaking with us today. It's great to see a different side from what you post online.
2: Yes, yeah, it's great. It was really fun to be here <laughs> and talk about research and antimicrobials with you.
1: Stay tuned for the next episode we're brewing up, where we'll come back with some more STEAM content. Well, everyone, this is Coffee and STEAM, where we choose scientific accessibility over jargon and coffee over all other beverages.